This is the living word of God for us today. We believe that. And so we believe this text is for us, not against us. The reason I start with that this morning is because we come under a hard text this morning, a a difficult text, one that kind of makes us wince a little bit. And so I take us back to that refrain that we keep saying over and over. This is the living word of God. In other words, it is alive, it is well, and it's for life for us, not for death for us. It is for us, intended for us, but also intended for our benefit, intended for our good, not our evil, and it is for us today. The words that you just heard read English words translated from an ancient Greek text, 2,000 years old, they are just as alive as they ever were. Through the Holy Spirit's inspiration, he guided James to aim his strongest words at a group of people that none of us want to identify with, but all of us must, at least at some level. Now, I had never heard a sermon preached on this passage before it came to me to teach it. It's not exactly in like the preacher's top 10 passages you want to preach, you know, particularly in our context that tends to be in the upper middle or the upper class of areas. I mean, these are hard, difficult words and we're not going to shy away from them. In fact, one of the reasons I love the way we approach our teaching expositionally through a book of the Bible is it keeps us from avoiding texts that we might not want to preach. Difficult text to interpret. It causes us, myself and Lloyd, and then you as we walk through it together to dig into them and ask the Spirit to guide us. So I want to do that this morning. We don't always do this, but I want to pause in the message and just pray and ask for God to speak to us through this text, the living word of God for us today. So let's bow our heads together as I do that. Father, we look to your Spirit to help us through a difficult passage, believing that you have authored it believing that you have preserved it these 2,000 years to be words of life for us today. Help us to hear your voice and not be hearers only, but be doers. Help our words, your words, to come alive in us and then through us for your words to come alive to the world. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, here's where we're, we're going to go. You can go ahead and open your Bibles, uh, if you haven't already, James chapter 5. And here's where we're going to go with this. I need to start with some cultural context, because we're talking about wealth, we're talking about riches. You need to know what was going on at that particular historical point of time in and outside the church for you to really understand this text well. That's the first part. The second part, we're going to walk through it verse by verse, just as we tend to do here, and we're going to explain it. We call that exposition. Now, as part of the exposition, I've thought of a contemporary, it's not exactly a contemporary story, but a well-known story, a secular story that I want to reintroduce you to by way of parable. That's going to help the text come alive a little bit for us. It really helped me this week. That's going to be part of our exposition. After that, we're going to ask the question, so what do we do? What is our response? Lloyd said last week, worship is essentially response to revelation. We've just encountered God's revelation. We're going to continue to encounter it over the next 30 minutes through this message. Then how will we respond to it? That's what I'm going to ask us. And then we'll close with a worship song, an opportunity to respond through music, enjoy and gratitude in our hearts for what we've received, even through what feels like a very difficult text. So that's where we're going the rest of the service. Let me start with that cultural context that I mentioned. There's three things that are important for you to understand about what's going on historically. Number one, 
in first century Palestine, there was virtually no middle class. So most of us in the room would probably identify with middle, upper middle, somewhere in that, maybe a little bit of upper, but few of us in the room would think, I am the elite, like I am the wealthy, right? Most of us also would not consider ourselves to be poor. But that category almost didn't exist in the first century. You were either rich or you were poor and you knew exactly where you stood. In fact, in the first century, at least before AD 70, when the Romans came and kind of leveled Jerusalem, uh, there was an increasing disparity between the rich and the poor and what was happening economically were these wealthy landowners were buying up all the small farms. And if you were a small farmer, you were kind of getting forced out of owning your own land and now you were working for someone else. And there was all kinds of injustice that was happening. This very small rich elite, small percentage of the whole uh, population were essentially oppressing the poor individuals. That's number one. Virtually no middle class. You were either rich or you were poor. You were probably poor and you knew it. Point number two, there were no social safety nets. So today we have things like welfare. We have things um, that kind of keep you, if you're falling down and the bottom falls out of your financial welfare, you get sick and lose your job. Like most of us are not gonna be homeless next month if that happens because we have you know, some governmental programs or we have some, some things that we can kind of fall back on. That did, does not exist in this day and age. In fact, your security in the first century in this social context came from the patriarch that you were attached to. It came from your family, your father or your grandfather. That's why it was so important to be attached to a patriarch. That's why marriage was so important to women. That's why the Bible over and over says, care for the widows and the orphans because they're outside of the social structure. They're the vulnerable in that society. That's point number two. There were no safety nets. The last point is this. When the church was formed in the first century, it was called to embody a new type of society, even economically. So Christians, this makes sense theologically, Christians considered themselves part of a broader family with God as the patriarch through Jesus Christ, the elder brother that adopts them into the family. Do you see how that adoption imagery was so important in that economic context? And so their faith was more of a bond than even their blood. Okay, now some things Jesus said make more sense, some things Paul said make more sense. And so therefore, the true patriarch that they're connected to is gonna provide for them. God's gonna provide for them. How did God provide for them? He used fellow believers to provide for them. They shared all that they had. We, we read about that in the book of Acts. And no one had any need in the church because they shared their resources as a family. That's what they were called to do. So for the most part, the writers of the New Testament, when they address rich people like this text does, for the most part, they're not talking about the average church member. Most of them were poor, which mirrored the broader society. But there were wealthy people in the church and Paul and James and others, the authors of the New Testament, they had a consistent message of instruction and admonishment for those who had more materially than they needed. And it was this, your excess wealth, whatever you have beyond your own needs, was given to you by God, not for you, not for you to just use selfishly however you want. It was given to you by God as a gift of provision for the body of Christ and the poor around you. That's what the Bible teaches Christians about wealth. Now, that's a really big idea, still is to this day. 
Here's the point of all this context. When it comes to wealth, the body of Christ has always been and is today intended to reflect a completely different perspective and set of values from the world around it. There's no getting around that. Like that's just, it's true in scripture. We see it over and over. And and the main difference that we are to embody is that we are to view excess resources that we have. So things above and beyond what we need for our own provision, we are to view them as God's gifts to us to be used by us for the good of those who have need. That's what we're called to be. We're called to be generous and, and not just sort of tip God as a way to say, thanks for giving me all this stuff, but to actually say, yeah, let me just ask, what, what do I actually really need? And, you know, the Bible doesn't tell you to be poor as a church mouse or anything like that. It instructs you to provide for your family. But beyond what you need, your provision, what are you to do with it? Well, this text is going to challenge us in some ways that may make us uncomfortable. But with all that cultural spiritual context under our belts, we're now ready to dig back into our text and maybe hear it again with fresh ears. Look at verse one, James chapter five. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries which are coming upon you. Now, you know, automatically I wince at that. I'm like, hold on, wait a second. Weep and howl for the miseries which are coming upon you. Where's grace in this, really? Now, this verse consists of an address to a particular audience and then a warning to that audience. Let's start with the address and we'll go to the warning. The address simply says, you rich. Come now, you rich. Is he talking to everybody who is rich? And by the way, what is rich? Did you know that today in our society, if if you're a single person making just $30,000 a year, that would put you in the top 4% of income globally? So all of us who are hearing my voice or listening online right now, all of us are wealthy in comparison to the whole world. Are we a part of this? Who's included in this? Come now, you rich. Now, here's what we're going to learn from the whole context of James in this passage here. James has a particular subgroup of wealthy people in mind. The subgroup of wealthy people he has in mind are wealthy people who are misusing their wealth. Wealthy people who are misusing their wealth. Specifically, people that are using their wealth for their own gain rather than as a tool to help those in need. I don't think that lets many of us off the hook just yet. Think of it this way. James's audience in this text, those who have more than they need and use their excess more selfishly than generously. That does not let me off the hook. I doubt it. It does for any of us. Now, as we walk through this passage together, I, I, I'm going to put alongside this parable. That's what parable essentially means, to bring something alongside so you can see some things. And Jesus used parables all the time. I'm going to use a piece of literature written by the great Charles Dickens, a great English uh, novelist. And, and I, I want to remind you of a particular character in one of his most famous books that I could not help but think of as I read this passage. Take a look at this scene from a cinema adaptation. Seven years ago today, 
not that you say? Mr. Marley died seven years ago this very day. Would it be too much to ask that you return to the work for which I pay you so handsomely? Mr. Cratchit! The fire's gone cold, Mr. Scrooge. Come over here, Mr. Cratchit. What is this? A shirt. And this? A waistcoat. And this? A coat. These are garments, Mr. Cratchit. Garments were invented by the human race's protection against the cold. Once purchased, they may be used indefinitely for the purpose for which they are intended. Cold burns. Cold is momentary and cold is costly. There will be no more coal burnt in this office today. Is that quite clear, Mr. Cratchit? Yes, sir. Now, please get back to work before I am forced to conclude that your services no longer required. Yes, sir. So despite what you thought from that opening scene, that was not downtown Franklin at Dickens Christmas. That was the real thing, right? And of course, that character you just met, Ebenezer Scrooge. Now think about that. Like he came from the mind of Charles Dickens, yet to this day even, what do we call someone that's rich and grumpy and miserly? We call them a Scrooge. Like that's how much impact that this story has had. Now Scrooge was wealthy and stingy and grumpy, but do you know what characterized his life more than anything else? Selfishness, selfishness. It's not even his wealth that tripped him up so much as he was so selfish with his wealth. In fact, his selfishness became the grid that he ran every single decision through. And maybe nowhere in the story is that better portrayed than this next little scene. Uh, Mr. Scrooge, I presume. Indeed you do, sir. You don't know us. Nor do I wish to. My name is Poole, and this is Mr. Hackett. Excellent. Now, if you'll allow me to pass. Uh, let me explain something. At this festive season of the year, it seems desirable that those of us with means should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute who suffer greatly at this time. Provision? Are you seeking money from me then? Many thousands are in want of common necessaries. Hundreds of thousands are in want of common comforts. Are there no prisons? Plenty of prisons. The workhouses, they're still in operation? They are. I wish I could say they were not. The treadmill, the poor houses, still in full vigor? All very busy, sir. <laughs> I was afraid from what you said, that something had stopped them in full force. A few of us are endeavoring to raise a fund to buy the poor some meat and drink and food and warmth. Oh, what can we put you down for, sir? Nothing. You wish to be anonymous? I wish to be left alone. Since you ask me what I wish, gentlemen, that is my answer. I don't make merry myself at Christmas, and I can't afford to make idle people merry. My taxes help to support the public institutions which I have mentioned, and they cost enough. Those who are badly off must go there. Many can't go there, and many would rather die. If they would rather die, perhaps they had better do so and uh, decrease the surplus population. Surely you don't mean that, sir. With all my heart. Now, if you will go about your business, gentlemen, and allow me to go about mine. That's uh, George C. Scott, 1984 version. He does such a good job of kind of portraying what I think Dickens had in mind in this character. 
Now, here's the thing about Scrooge, and this is so artful by Charles Dickens and why I think he, he's such a powerful character for us today. None of us would say, I'm like that. Like, nobody would go around saying, yeah, that's me. I see myself in that directly. But all of us, if we have eyes to see, would see a part of ourselves in Scrooge, the part of us that doesn't want to be inconvenienced, the part of us that just says, you know, it's just really kind of about what I need and I want, the selfish part. And so as you work through this story, whether you're watching a, a theatrical version of it, you're, you're watching a movie, or you're reading the book, which I did for the first time this week, and it was marvelous. As you're walking through this, you're rooting for redemption. Why are you rooting for this awful, crusty, hard-hearted man to be redeemed? Because you see part of yourself in his selfishness. Now, in our text, the warning statement to James audience, keep in mind his audience, are those who have more than what they need and are using them selfishly, not generously. That's the audience. The warning statement is this. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Now, think about how much this is like what Dickens does with the story. So you're introduced to Scrooge. Shortly thereafter, he's going to be visited by three ghosts. The ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, the ghost of Christmas future. What they're giving him is a warning. Their warning sounds a lot like James chapter 5 verse 1. Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. He meets the ghost of his former business partner that's just wrecked with chains and miserable. And he's essentially saying, this is you. This is going to be you. He's offering Scrooge a mirror to himself. And the other three ghosts come as well. And what do they offer Scrooge? They offer him truth. They hold up a mirror. They say, look, open your eyes. They show them the consequences of a life ruled by selfish choices. That's what he encounters. It's truth. So I believe the true spirit, the Holy Spirit, the real spirit, is doing something very similar through this text in James chapter 5. Now, in the next two verses, verses two and three, we are going to get a glimpse of the future for rich people who utilize their wealth selfishly rather than generously. Here it is. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. According to the Holy Spirit, speaking through James as he writes, here's the big picture truth about wealth. It's short-lived and fragile. James is saying to people with excess, you must understand that it has no eternal value. Wealth cannot give you what you need. Have you ever thought about what you're, with the longings of your heart that you're trying to satisfy through, through material things, through money and consumerism and, and all the things that we chase after and bank accounts and all these things. What, what, what's the deep desire of our heart that we're really going after? I think it comes down to one or more of three things. Number one, security. There's a lot of us that would say, man, I, I just, I need some money so that I, I feel secure. Number two, identity. There are a number of us that would say, well, I don't want to be thought of as a poor person who just has ruined my life. I need the status of wealth, you know, how I dress, the car I drive, the house I live in. Maybe you don't have to be the very top of the heap, but I don't want to be at the bottom either. It's identity for me. It's status for me. Number three, comfort. A number of us spend our money on things that make our lives a little bit easier, that give us pleasure, that kind of take the edge off of the harshness of life. 
security, identity, comfort. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, which James parallels in topic and idea throughout his book, says this in Matthew chapter 6, 19 to 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I love this teaching of Jesus because it, it's so practical. It's just like, listen, for your own good, there's a secure place to invest and there's a lot of insecure places to invest. Put your wealth where it's secure. Like that's what Jesus is saying. It's so practical, it's so wise. But then he goes down into the heart. Did you notice that verse 21? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Listen to Jesus here. Here's what he's saying. When you look to earthly treasure for security, identity, and comfort, it results in a dislocated heart. Rob, what do you mean a dislocated heart? Well, your heart is meant to be whole in Jesus Christ, wholehearted life in Jesus. When you try to fulfill deep desires of your heart, which is a part of one of the quadrants of your heart, your deep desires, and you try to fill them with material things that don't last, your heart isn't whole. It's dislocated. It's separated from what's actually going to bring it wholeness. I love the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases this verse. You know, Eugene Peterson wrote the, the, the message, which is an excellent paraphrase uh, of the Bible. Here's, how he go, here's where he goes in verse three. Your greedy luxuries are a cancer in your gut, destroying your life from within. Oh, if we would just believe that. I think it's true. I can think of examples in my own life. Like It's easier when you look back, not when you look at the present. It's just like, man, yeah, how much I cared about that thing that was just the, 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 an item for a future garage sale. You know, how much that silly thing that I spent time and energy and money on took me away from things that matter, my family, my relationships, my relationship to God. How much it robbed me of joy when I thought it was gaining for me joy. Peterson says, your greedy luxuries are a cancer in your gut in your core, in your insides, in your heart. He's saying the same thing as James and Jesus. Now, I want us to look at the rest of verse three as we keep moving. We've already looked at the first phrase, your gold and your silver have rusted. Let's look at the, the rest. And their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you've stored up your treasure. There's irony there. In the last days, you've been hoarding wealth. Here's what James is saying. Rusted wealth is evidence of misuse. What do you mean by that? Rusted wealth. Remember what the New Testament teaches about wealth for the people of God, for the church, for, for Christians? Excess resources are not given to you for you. Excess resources are given to you to be put to use for the provision of those with less. And so the rust on your gold and silver, which is sort of metaphorical language, rust and, uh, gold and silver don't actually rust, but think about dust on your junk in your attic. Think about money piling up in an account somewhere that honestly, 
you're not going to use it. It's sitting there and, and it's, in, it's in the name of wisdom. And now listen, I'm not saying that you know, wise retirement and saving and all those things aren't sound and good. You see instruction in Bible about saving and how that's good. But, but we have to wrap our minds around what, what are the limits of what's prudent? What are the limits of what God would really call us to? The rust of excess resources sitting around is testimony that it's not being put to use in the way that God intended it. That's not my message. That's the message of the Spirit through the letter of James. There's a quote we'll, we'll put on the screen by Basil the Great. He was a, a theologian and church leader in the fourth century. This, this quote slays me every time I read it. I don't like it, but it's, it's true. When someone steals another's clothes, we call them a thief. Should we not give the same name to one who could clothe the naked and does not? The bread in your cupboard belongs to the hungry. The coat unused in your closet belongs to the one who needs it. The shoes rotting in your closet belong to the one who has no shoes. The money which you hoard up belongs to the poor. He sounds an awful lot like James. So far, we've seen a warning. The warning consisted of the truth about wealth, that it doesn't last, and then the consequences of misusing it. There, there's some kind of judgment associated with rusty wealth. Now, verses four to six are gonna list specific charges against those that have excess resources and use them only selfishly. Here are the charges. Think of these next three verses as the Spirit saying through James, here is what you're guilty of. Verse four, behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Charge number one, you are guilty of injustice toward those whom you rightfully owe. Uh, there's, there's some beautiful metaphorical language in this. The joy of, of the pay of the laborers cries out against you. Reminds me of Genesis 4.10 when God says to Cain shortly after he's killed his brother Abel, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now it gets even more serious if you can believe it when you understand what that weird word at the end means, Sabbath. It's not Sabbath, day of rest. This is a whole different word. Sabbath is actually a Hebrew word that was just brought into the Greek and then we bring it straight into the English in this translation, it means host, but not the kind of dinner host you might be thinking of, and a host of warriors. It's an army. So here's what James is saying. You have aroused the commander of the heavenly armies, the Lord of the hosts. You've aroused him to move against you in justice for those that you have oppressed. Their unpaid wages are crying out for justice, and he is moving on their behalf. It's charge number one. Charge number two, if that one you couldn't connect with, this one, I think you will. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. James is such a vivid writer, isn't he? The picture is of farm animals that are gorging themselves with no consciousness that before their meal is even digested, their lives will be finished. 
Yet James doesn't say it's your fattened belly you have to worry about. He says it's a fattened heart. What an image. It's a picture of someone who is gorging themselves. The phrase is wanton pleasures. What would that be? All the desires of our heart that we're trying to meet with all the wrong things. It's like, I want security, so I'm going to try to find it in something that won't last. I want identity, and so I'm going to get it there. I want comfort, so I'm going to search for it. I'm going to grab onto it. I'm going to fill my heart with all of these things. Eugene Peterson, again, says it so well. He translates or paraphrases this verse. You've looted the earth. You've lived it up, but all you'll have to show for it is a fatter-than-usual corpse. We get to the final charge in verse six. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. This is a bit of an unusual verse. Um, Most of us think, well, what is he talking about? Is he talking about murder? I'm not responsible for any murder. There are two ways you can understand this. The first is, yeah, literal murder. And I want to put this in a context that may very well have been what James was intending. Uh, In that first century church that James was responsible for, you know, he was the the leader, the pastor of the Jerusalem church. Where were all the people? They weren't in Jerusalem anymore. They were scattered all around. Why were they scattered all around? Persecution and martyrdom. Stephen had been a righteous man who was literally martyred, that was literally killed. Who was he killed by those with religious power, authority, and influence, and those with political power, authority, and influence who were also wealthy. Remember, in that culture, you could not have influence of any kind without wealth. Wealthy people that were responsible for the death of the martyrs in the early church. That may very well have been what James meant. There's, there's another interpretation, how we might understand this verse, that doesn't require it to be talking about literal murder. And James may have meant this by it, or he may have meant both. And that is what Jesus said about murder. Do you remember what Jesus said about murder? And James may have had this in mind, because it's from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you have heard it said, do not commit murder. Murder, but I say that anyone who is angry and expresses anger toward a brother or sister has committed murder in their heart. Now, with that in mind, think about some of the attitudes and behaviors of the rich toward those that they see so far below them that are poor. There is a brilliant example of this kind of attitude in Ebenezer Scrooge. Do you remember what he said about the poor in that scene we watched a little bit ago? I'm gonna quote him. If they would rather die, they had better do it and decrease the surplus population. I wanna read to you from the actual text of A Christmas Carol because there is a later scene with some dialogue in it that's so well-written and so strong and so heavy and it's not quite captured in any of the theatrical performances that I've found. Here's the context of this scene. Scrooge is with the ghost of Christmas present. And one of the things that he gets to see when he's with the ghost of Christmas present is he goes into the home of the Cratchit family. You know, Bob Cratchit is his employee and they're sitting around their table eating their meager Christmas meal. And of course they can't see Scrooge. He's invisible to them, but he can see and hear them. And they've just enjoyed this wonderful meal. It's so beautifully described by Dickens. It's gorgeous writing and it's so small, but they have such joy in it. 
And then at the end of the meal, Tiny Tim gives his famous line. It's the first time it comes up in the book. Of course, it's going to close the book later on. God bless us, everyone, said Tiny Tim, the last of all. He sat very close to his father's side upon his little stool. His father, Bob, held his withered little hand in his because he loved the child and wished to keep him by his side and dreaded that he might be taken from him. Spirit, said Scrooge, with an interest he had never felt before. Tell me if tiny Tim will live. I see a vacant seat, replied the ghost, in the poor chimney corner and a crutch without an owner carefully preserved. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, the child will die. No, said Scrooge. Oh no, kind spirit, say he will be spared. If these shadows remain unaltered by the future, none other of my race, returned the ghost, will find him here. What then? If he be like to die, he had better do it and decrease the surplus population. Scrooge hung his head to hear his own words quoted by the spirit and was overcome with penitence and grief. Man, said the ghost, if man you be in heart, forbear that wicked thought until you have discovered what the surplus is and where it is. Will you decide what men shall live and what men shall die? It may be that in the sight of heaven, you are more worthless and less fit to live than millions like this poor man's child. Oh God, to hear the insect on the leaf pronouncing on the too much life among his hungry brothers in the dust. Scrooge bent before the ghost's rebuke and trembling cast his eyes upon the ground. Hard words from the spirit to Ebenezer Scrooge, but words he must hear. Not unlike our text this morning. So how will we respond to this? What will we do? Will our response be like Scrooge's? Is there even hope in this text? Honestly, it never lets up. I mean, there's six verses just pounding the selfish rich over and over. It never says at any point in time, unless you repent, it's just not there in the text. Now, next week, Lloyd will teach through the next part. There, there's some words of application, but, but honestly, they're not, closely, directly related to wealth. They're somewhat related, but what might the Spirit be speaking to us, the true Spirit, the Spirit of God through our text, our six verses that we've looked at this morning? Well, it might help us to consider the life of Ebenezer Scrooge one last time. Why was he haunted by those three ghosts? despite the fact that he didn't want them. In fact, when you read the book several times, he says, you know, I don't want this. I don't need this. Stay away from me. And yet they persisted. They frightened him. They spoke harsh truth to him. They brought him to tears. They brought him to sobs. They brought him even to some terror. Why did they come? They came so that he would change. They came so that the lesson of the whole story could not just be don't be like Scrooge, but the lesson of the story could be for the parts of you that are like Scrooge, it's not too late for redemption. It's not too late for 
change. In Scrooge's final moments with one of the ghosts, it's the ghost of Christmas future, like the scariest one that's just death. You know, it's just like this black shroud of death. In his final moments with that particular ghost, Scrooge finds himself standing over his own grave. And, you know, the ghost points out the engraving on the stone, Ebenezer Scrooge. And Scrooge just uncontrollably sobs and cries out. And he says the same thing over and over. And here's what he begs of the ghost. He says, please tell me it's not too late. Please tell me this is the future that might be, not the future that must be. Assure me that I have yet, I can yet change these shadows you have shown me by an altered life. What is Scrooge essentially saying? He's essentially saying, I see now I've been wrong and I repent. He has come to repentance, a changed mind, a changed heart, ready to make new choices. The next thing that happens in the story is this final scene you're about to see. all in one night. Well, they can do anything they like. Of course they can. Um, hello, my fine fellow. Hello. Do you know the poulterers in the next street but one uh, on the corner? I should hope I did. Intelligent boy, remarkable boy. Um, do you know if they've sold the prize turkey that was hanging there? What, the one as big as me? <laughs> Delightful boy. <laughs> Pleasure talking to you. <laughs> the one as big as you. It's hanging there now. Well, go and buy it. Yes, go and buy it and bring them round so that I may tell them where to deliver it. Come back with the man, I'll give you a shilling. Come back in less than five minutes, I'll give you half a crown. <laughs> I must stress myself. So much to do. I don't want to lose any time. I was light. I'm as happy as an angel. <laughs> I'm as merry as a schoolboy. <laughs> I'm as giddy as a drunken man. <laughs> merry Christmas to everybody. And a happy new year to the world. <laughs> Charles Dickens never explains the gospel. He never points to Jesus anywhere in the story. But every time I watch that scene, I think, what a marvelous picture of what it means to be born again, to have new life. Now, here's the thing, though. If you go out of here saying, all right, I'm convicted. I'm going to be like the transformed version of Ebenezer Scrooge, and I'm going to find new life and utilizing my resources differently. You will not find what God is calling you to fully. It takes something different, deeper more transformative than even the scene that you just saw. And so that brings us to one final point. Even as difficult a text as this is, there's something of the gospel in it. 
There's something of hope in Jesus in it. I want to point it out to you. And in verse six, James says, we've already read this. I want to reread it. He says this to selfish, sinful, wealthy people. You've condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Was he talking about, you know, who is he talking about there? Is is he talking about Stephen? Maybe. Was he talking about, you know, others that, that, that the rich people had just killed the martyrs, others? Is he talking about even in your mind, your heart, you've wished ill will on other people, you've killed the murderer? Maybe, or... And he could have had someone else in mind as well. Listen to the words of Isaiah 53, a prophecy about the righteous one, about the righteous man who would come to save the world. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging, we are healed. So it's not just that we get another chance to think about money differently. It's that the death that we are destined to die in our sin has been overcome and the resurrection, the new life pictured in Scrooge's life can actually be real, can be full, can be True. You see, here's how the story of Jesus played out. He could have been the wealthiest man of his time. He could have been the wealthiest man that ever lived. Instead, he chose to be poor. He chose to be dirty and mocked and rejected and abandoned and misused and misunderstood and spat upon and betrayed and ultimately killed by rich and poor humans alike. Why did he do all that? Consider this Last verse, we'll put it on the screen. Paul writes this, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, here's the gospel, the good news, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. This is good news for people who want to be rich, who want to be wealthy. The only difference is you're not going to find it where you think you're going to find it. So that you might be rich. That's why Jesus came. What do you mean? Rich in what way? In every kind of way. That we might have eternal security. That we might have true identity. That we might have permanent comfort. That we might know the wealth of transformed lives. That we might know the riches of a whole heart. And that we might, yes, even someday inherit an incorruptible body. Those are all the things that your money can't buy. You can't have those except through the riches of Jesus Christ. Traded for you. In your scrooginess, Jesus came. (laughs) While you were yet a sinner. He died for you. Jesus came so that we, who are in reality impoverished in all the ways that actually matter, so that we might become wealthy in all the ways that actually matter. I'm gonna invite you to bow your heads. I'm gonna pray in a moment, but I want you to first, just all of us, bow our heads. And with your heads bowed, I would invite you to consider a couple of things. For all of us who have felt some weight of God's word on us this morning, the path is repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. I want to encourage you with this good news. There's no example in scripture of a human being 
who said to God, I see now that I was wrong and I repent that God did not respond with mercy and grace. Not a single example. Your heads are bowed because I wanted to invite you into a posture that would reflect an attitude of a heart, which is humility and submission. Acknowledging that God's in control, acknowledging that he desires good for you, not ill for you, and a willingness to come under the authority of God's word, even when it lands hard. And so now, Father, we pray. We pray that you would give us mercy. Pray that you would give us grace. For many of us in this room, we do have more than we need, and we don't always know what to do with it. And we compare ourselves to people that are much richer than us, and we feel good about ourselves, and compare ourselves to people that are much poorer than us, and we feel bad about ourselves, and so we don't like to spend time with them. Would you change our hearts? Father, I want to pray specifically for the men and women in the room that don't have an actual relationship with you through Jesus, that, that they would walk out of a message like this and, and tune it out, or, or, or even worse, maybe, try to go do it without Jesus. Father, would you show them that Jesus is their fill that his life was lived to be the perfect life that they should have lived but couldn't, that his death was on their behalf, the death that they deserved, and his resurrection allows them to enter into newness of life, a true rebirth. And would you, Father, give them grace even this morning? And if that describes you and you for the first time are kind of coming to an understanding of what Jesus did for you, you can have eternal life simply by acknowledging your sin and asking for forgiveness and receiving the gift of eternal life through the blood and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray for all of us that we would walk out of here in knowledge of the newness of life that we have in Jesus, for it's in his great name that we pray. Amen.